This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 438. Thanks to UCAN for sponsoring this episode. As a listener to the podcast, you can try UCAN Edge Gels for free. All you pay is the cost of shipping. Head over to UCAN.co slash MTA to get the Marathon Training Academy sample pack. You can also get 20% off anything in their store with the code MTA. That's UCAN.co slash MTA. Thanks also to our friends at Prevenex, makers of Joint Health Plus and Muscle Health Plus. Try Muscle Health Plus and get 15% off your entire order, even if you've previously used our code over at Prevenex.com. Use the code MTA Strength at checkout for 15% off. Muscle Health Plus and Joint Health Plus at Prevenex.com. Use the code MTA Strength for 15% off. <laughs> Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower and inspire you to run a marathon and change your life. In this episode, we're joined by two of our coaches, Coach Carrie and Coach Jenna, to answer questions sent in from Academy members and listeners about running injuries, ultra marathon training, shakeout runs, super shoes, mileage per week, and more. And just a reminder, as a member of the Academy, you get access to all of our podcast episodes going back to uh, 2010 when we started the show, as well as all of our training plans and our awesome online community. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Well, before we get going here, we just like to, of course, mention the shocking news. Kelvin Kiptum, the fastest marathoner, tragically passed away. I'm sure you've heard of this by now. And here's an excerpt from Runner's World. It says Kelvin Kiptum, who set a stunning world record in the marathon last October in Chicago, running two hours and 35 seconds, died in a car accident on February 11th in Kenya, according to the Daily Standard. He was 24. His coach, Gervais Hakazamana of Rwanda, age 36, also died in the accident, according to reports. Kiptum was only 23 when he smashed the previous marathon record held by Elliot Kipchoge. He averaged 436 per mile for the distance, and he negative split the race, running one hour and 48 seconds for the first half and 59.47 for the second. Kiptum seemed made for the marathon. He won his first marathon in 2022 in Valencia, Spain in 2.01.53. He then won the 2022 London Marathon in 2.01.25, coming within 16 seconds of Kipchoge's record before his Chicago performance. He had already announced plans to attempt to break the two-hour barrier at the Rotterdam Marathon in April of 2024. Kiptum is survived by his wife and his two children. Very, very tragic news for the running world. Our hearts go out to his family and everyone in his community. And man, yeah, we we lost a great one. That's, yeah, definitely a tragedy. Well, we are uh, only a couple weeks away from the Tokyo Marathon. (laughs) We're excited about going to Tokyo for the very first time. We're running for the charity Room to Read, uh, which is a great honor. And this will be our first race on the calendar in 2024. But there are folks in our community who've already run a marathon this year. So we'd like to give a a couple shout outs before we jump into our Q&A. That's right. Congratulations to Charlene on overcoming injury and conquering her first marathon. 
She trains with Coach Carrie, and she posted this excerpt. She said, last Sunday, I ran the Donna Breast Cancer Marathon in Jacksonville, Florida. With a rainy forecast looming, I was nervous. I took Coach Carrie's advice and used Body Clyde on every surface of my body. That's good advice. I took no chances. I had my fuel and hydration plan ready to go. With my left shin still giving me a nagging pain, I wanted to be careful, although I was pretty resigned that I would have to take several weeks off after this race. I took each mile as it came and felt good most of the way up to mile 20. At that time, torrential rains came and gusty winds. It seriously seemed like a tropical storm. If it began to lightning, they would stop the race, and I started to get anxious. I stayed strong mentally and kept moving forward, even though it was so different than I imagined. My hamstrings were screaming at me, and I just felt physically tired. The rain and wind would not let up. The last 6.2 miles were the longest miles of my life, she says in all caps, but I made it <laughs> and finished in 5 hours, 17 minutes, and 43 seconds. I want to thank Coach Carrie for her guidance, Angie and Trevor for their informative and motivational podcast, and all the MTA family for being a constant source of inspiration and encouragement. All right. Well, congrats on overcoming different obstacles that came up during your training, injury, and, and various things, and making it to the start line and pushing through uh, when the conditions got not very fun to run in. Torrential rains is definitely not fun. Gusty winds. <laughs> yeah, that was sounds like she got all of the challenges in her first yeah. marathon experience. You got your money's worth out of it. <laughs> and congrats also to Gareth, who ran the Mesa Marathon in Arizona. He earned a 29-minute PR. He trains with Coach Antonio on our team, and he posted this. He says, Mesa Marathon in the books, my third marathon and a PR by 29 minutes. I couldn't have nailed this one without an awesome training block under the guidance of Coach Antonio. I really enjoyed the process and mixture of sessions throughout the buildup. I leaned on the feeling of those tough ones when the race got heavy at mile 21. The weather wasn't superb, however, the atmosphere and location were spot on. Through the rain and puddles, I kept to the plan we discussed, and I knew at halfway I was rolling okay. The quads were banged up from the early, fast downhill sections, and at mile 23, I really needed to dig deep. But I found something in the tank and kicked it home with a strong last three miles to run three hours, 30 minutes, and 34 seconds. Nice. This is my first race with a coach formulating a specific and guided plan, and I can absolutely testify to its value. Much thanks to Coach Antonio, and bring on the next PR chase. Love it. Hey, that's great, man. Thanks for sharing that. Coach Antonio, um, he's going to be at the Tokyo Marathon also. And uh, this episode is all about answering listener questions. So we rounded up some questions from our members and from people on our email list. And we plan on having two parts. So this is part one because we got a lot of questions. So we are going to be joined by Carrie and Jenna. Coach Carrie Marlowe is a certified running coach, of course, and she's also a personal trainer, corrective exercise specialist, fitness nutrition specialist, and she's coached runners from first timers all the way to Boston qualifiers. Coach Jenna Ziegler is also a certified running coach and marathoner herself. In addition to that, she is a uh, doctor of physical therapy, so we wanted to make sure we had some injury questions ready for her. She is passionate about helping injured runners get back to doing what they love. Here is our Ask the Coach Q&A, part one. Well on my way, well on my way. All right, we're on the podcast now with Coach Carrie and Coach Jenna. 
Um, ladies, welcome to the MTA podcast. Great to have you. We like to start with maybe a short you know, introduction. Tell us about yourself. Where do you live and what got you interested in being a running coach? Um, Carrie, let's start with you. So I currently live in uh, Wisconsin, southeastern Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee area. Uh, I got into coaching because I started running and I really flailed with figuring out what to do. I used some stock training plans, tried some things, ended up injured, and I really found that I liked creating my own training plans. And so I thought, I think I can do this. And I got some training and took some courses, um, really enjoyed the process. The rest is history. And you're also a race director. So tell us about that. And what's the name of the series? It's the Golden Kettle Trail Series is the seven race trail series. And then we also have the Arctos Ultra, which is a timed ultra uh, end of February, beginning of March, uh, 6, 12 or 20 hours. And I think this year we're going to have very unseasonably non-winter weather because uh, it's two weeks from now. And I don't think we're going to get snow and cold. So, yeah. Yeah. Is it Golden Kettle because it's in the Kettle Moraine uh, Forest? Yeah, you got it. Yep. Okay. We have two races in the Northern Kettle and then five in the Southern Kettle. So Angie, I think you did your first 50 miler there, right? Yeah. Through North Face, they did a race series up there. So great yeah, trails. Yeah, they don't have that series. They don't have that race here anymore. I actually love that race. I would love to create a race on that trail because it's some beautiful trails there. All right, Coach Jenna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where are you from and what got you interested in being a running coach? I am from Stillwater, Minnesota, and um, like Carrie, I have been interested in running and learning all the science and the training and theory behind it. Um, I'm also a physical therapist, and so I get to work with a lot of runners and really seeing their training injuries and thinking about training theory and how those two things combine so often. So then I ended up taking Roadrunners of America coaching and the USCA coaching as well. And I just love to do a lot of reading about coaching theory and the science behind it. I just like to nerd out about running a lot. So as a physical therapist, you've probably worked with a lot of injured runners through the years because I've heard that runners can get injured. Yes, yes, exactly. The percentages are kind of shocking. They, you know, they say between like, you know, 50% or 80% of runners will get injured every year. So it's a pretty high number. Um, And I really actually love working with runners as a physical therapist. It just makes me feel alive, honestly, as a provider um, to just hear their story and to learn how they got injured and to make a plan of how to get them back out running again. And then again, to bring that coaching part of it, of creating a training plan to make sure that they can get back to running safely and healthy. All right. So we got some great questions sent in from our community. Uh, We're going to jump into a couple questions about motivation in general. So first one is from an Academy member named Yali. Angie, can you read that for us? Yes. She says, I'm sure we all have our own answers to this, but I'm curious. What do you tell people who say to you, I wish I could run like that, but I just can't. I'm not a runner. Coach Carey, what do you think? Well, first of all, I would say if you run, you're a runner. Everyone's on a different journey and in different places in life. And certainly it feels like sometimes when we're looking at people who are running 50 miles or Boston Marathon or whatever that benchmark that we think is so great that makes us a runner is, you know, truth be told, not all of us necessarily want to run 50 miles or want to run Boston Marathon. So if you run, you're a runner. And another thing that I really like to tell a lot of my athletes that will say things like that, like, well, I'll never run that fast or I'll never do X, Y, Z is comparison is the thief of joy. And you really just have to 
own your own journey and and make it your own. If whether you're running 5Ks or 50Ks, you're still a runner. And so the journey may be a little bit different, but a mile is a mile. Exactly. Okay. So here's a question from Elisa. She says, how can you find goals to train for once it becomes apparent that your PRs are all behind you? So that's all we know about Lisa. We don't know why she says her PRs are behind her, but I think this is a good question. Maybe for some runners who ran a faster marathon when they were younger, now they're maybe an hour or so slower than they were back then. Um, How do you keep yourself motivated? Angie, do you have any thoughts on this one? Well, I think maybe if you could look at it this way, like if you take your time out of the equation, how does that make you feel? Like what does that open up for you? Um, I think sometimes time goals can actually, we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Um, So maybe it will actually give you Lisa more joy to not even think about time and think like, do I want to explore trails? Do I want to try races at different distances? Do I want to travel to do races? Like what kind of excites her taking time off the table? because it's simply just one metric and not everyone is motivated by time. And a lot of times you're going to meet the best people, you know, maybe like at the back of the pack, they're having more fun back there. (laughs) And it certainly can take some stress out of the equation. So I mean, it's going to be different for every person. But kind of think about all the possibilities. You know, I think there are a lot more possibilities than there are limitations. Yeah, you are probably more mentally tough uh, being older now. If you're older, you have a mental advantage perhaps over your younger self. So that's a good time maybe to get into ultra running because you have that mental toughness and it's not all about speed or fast turnover or fast mile, just about smart training and hanging in there and eating, right? It's like a big eating (laughs) contest. We're going to talk about ultra training as well. But first, let's talk about running injuries. Angie, uh, can you read the first one? Um, This first one comes from Minakshi. And she says, how should you deal with compartment syndrome? And I think, Jenna, we'll throw this one over to you because you probably have the most expertise. Yeah, first of all, what is that? Right. So compartment syndrome is when there's a buildup of blood and pressure within a compartment of a muscle. So the anatomy of it is when you're looking at a muscle or several muscles near each other, they have a fascia system around them that kind of creates a little baggy. And in the lower leg, there are actually four different compartments. There's one on the front of your shin. There's one to the side of your shin. There's the back compartment that's kind of by your gastroc, the big calf muscle. And then there's a deep one in below that gastroc muscle. So it's just a buildup of blood and pressure. Um, oftentimes with runners, it comes on at almost an exact time frame. So when they are running or walking, they will start to build up with pressure, that blood pressure within that muscle, and they'll start to have pain. Uh, potentially it could lead to tingling and numbness or kind of loss of function. And that's when it gets really concerning. So it's not a very common injury for runners to have. Um, It's important to have a medical diagnosis of this. That's especially important because they do take a pressure of the muscles. They put a little sheath inside the muscle and actually measure the pressure. Um, But things that could look like this could be low back pain from spinal stenosis, which comes on at about a same time frame. So it might start pain in your leg at that same 10 to 15 minutes or even vascular issues. So reaching out to your medical doctor to get that confirmed compartment syndrome diagnosis with that um, pressures within the tissue. And for runners, the conservative path, it's usually as long as the symptoms are not severe, where they're not having numbness, tingling, those severe kind of nerve type injuries, then they tend to recommend walking at that onset of pain or even stopping. 
So for Menasha, it might be something that she could run for a period of time. Maybe it's 15 minutes. Then maybe she stands, rests, or walks until the symptoms abate and then could go again. It's all very person dependent. So this is actually something that Kara Goucher had. Mm. um, And she ended up having this surgical procedure for it, which is a fasciotomy, where they actually go in and they open that compartment or package where those muscles are to relieve the pressure. Wow. Does not sound fun. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty intense. And again, it's it's just important that you listen to the symptoms. If if it is compartment syndrome, it can cause nerve injury. And so if it's getting severe, you'd want to really be taking care of that. If it's mild and your doctor's approving you to keep walking or running, then you're just going to listen to when those symptoms start. And then again, take a break, walk or stand still until those symptoms completely resolve. All right. Good stuff. This next question actually comes from Angie, not me, but um, (laughs) she says, I have been running 10Ks, half marathons, and a couple of marathons for the past 20 years. Just before my 50th birthday, I had terrible and sudden knee pain during a run. After an MRI, I was told that half of my cartilage is gone in my right knee. It seems that I have arthritis. Please help. What can I do? I can't imagine life without running. My doctor has said that I should only run on soft ground. Are there any other tips? What about knee surgery? Do you know of any tips or even new techniques for helping to grow cartilage? And then she says, I will do anything with lots of exclamation marks. So you can definitely sense her desperation coming through in this question. Um, Jen, I think we'll throw this one over to you as well. Yeah. So Angie, I think most importantly to say is that um, when we look at uh, people that are 50, many of us will have knee arthritis at that point. It's kind of like wrinkles on your face. You know, wrinkles, they hurt our vanity. They aren't painful though. And so potentially you might have arthritis in your knee, but it might not be the source or origin of your pain. And so I would highly biased recommendation, recommend working with a running physical therapist to get down to that root reason of why you're having pain. I work with many runners from ages, you know, 18 to 80, and they're all going to have different reasons for having pain. So oftentimes when people are having arthritis pain, if that truly is the pain region, we'd want to be modifying your running style potentially. So that could be looking at a cadence adjustment um, where you're trying to get your cadence up in the 170s, 180s. That makes it so when you're landing on the ground, you're landing lighter and softer. A cue that I use for people is pretend you're sneaking up on someone and run really quietly. So that can be something that just reduces your ground loading. Another thing might be looking at different types of shoes. So we know that there are a lot of shoes that offer a lot of cushion these days. And so that could be something you're changing your shoes. Um, And it's also very valuable. You know, professional runners, they are probably never running in the same shoes day after day. They have a cycle. So that's important too, is that you would maybe have shoes A, B, C, and you're, you're running through them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, A, B, C shoes so that those shoes can provide a lot of compression for you. Another thing I'd want to look at would be the strength of your legs. So making sure you're strong actually can help to offload the joint spaces and make running more comfortable for you. Um, it could be an opportunity too to do some deloaded cardiovascular work like biking, um, elliptical, or water walking. Those are all really valuable and add a lot of cardiovascular benefit to you and can still allow you to run and even potentially reach goals in your running for PRs. And then, you know, making sure that you're following a training plan that's being respectful of your pain and making sure you're kind of taking note of when that pain's starting um, and trying to modify your training potentially around that. So 
something that you said that middle age seems to be a point in time when this tends to pop up for many people. And I've just been reading lately about, you know, the whole perimenopause period, menopause, that decreases in estrogen in the body can have huge ramifications for joints, um, tendons, I'm guessing cartilage as well. Um, Is that something that you see happening with your patients sometimes? Yes. So something I learned not that long ago was that we have estrogen receptors all over our body and potentially, yes, our tendons, ligaments, bones, joints have estrogen receptors. So when that is changing in our body, our body is reacting differently. And that may be a reason why women in their middle or perimenopause ages develop things like tendinopathy or tendinitis or joint pain. And again, it's not that they have to stop running. It's that we maybe need to modify that. Um, Another good point is she kind of asked, like, what can she do for the knee osteoarthritis? If she saw PT and they really confirmed that that was the pain generator, there is some good research potentially about doing platelet-rich plasma or PRP injections um, into that site. And you uh, just go to a doctor that can provide that, and that potentially can increase that cartilage growth or restore some of that cartilage growth. That's a great opportunity before trying to do a joint replacement. Coach Karen. Carrie, have you ever dealt with injury? (laughs) Uh, I laugh. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Many over the years. I actually had PRP last year on uh, my hip and high hamstring. I kind of have chronic high hamstring issues, and I feel like it it did help. Uh, More recently, I detached my meniscus from the root. Um, Mm. On the road to recovery from that. But yeah, I've had Morton's neuroma, You're going to scare people away from running. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a lot of those were early on in my running journey when I ran too much and too fast. And I just didn't have a, I loved running so much that I wanted to run every day. And a lot of it is overtraining issues. And I'm sure Jenna can probably tell you a lot of the injuries that runners have are overtraining. We just do too much. And so I've had a lot of those plantar fasciitis, pretty typical. It's either, I think, and maybe Jenna can back me up. It's either overtraining or it's imbalances where we're not cross training. We're not doing our strength training. We're not giving our body time to recover. So yeah, I've had a few. I think it's good to point out, though, that even if you're not a runner, as you age, you are going to get injured. You know, we know people who like step off the curb wrong and get injured or slip on the ice. And, you know, I know plenty of people who, you know, in their mid 40s who have had knee replacements and they're not runners. And so it's like, you we tend to like think, oh, running is so, you know, that's why running gets a bad rap for being so injury prone. But if you just look at life, life is a very injury prone business. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Hey, quick break here to say that when it comes to cartilage and joint health, we can't recommend Prevenex enough. They make a supplement we've been taking called Joint Health Plus, which has Boswellin. It's a powerful, natural, clinically proven anti-inflammatory and pain reliever, and it provides support for your joints. Joint Health Plus also has NEM, which is clinically proven to reduce your joint pain and stiffness and improve your flexibility in just 7 to 10 days. Yeah, we have a review that just came in from a listener named Melissa. She says, I started taking Joint Health Plus first, and after years and years of taking glucosamine and MSM, I actually feel a difference with this. I'm now using the Muscle Health Supplement, and it seems to help me recover faster. Being new to this type of supplement, I'm looking forward to seeing how it helps with strength training. 
So Melissa is referring to their new product called Muscle Health Plus, and it's something that we've been taking as well. It's designed to fuel your muscle health by decreasing muscle breakdown, increasing lean muscle mass, boosting protein synthesis, enhancing strength, and more. As runners, we know how important all of this can be to our running and running performance. And Prevenex combines ingredients that you'd normally have to get from two to three different products so that you'll be taking a great product and saving money while you do that. Yeah, and to help you save even more, use the code MTA Strength at checkout. If you have Muscle Health Plus in the shopping cart, you'll get 15% off the whole order. Just go to Prevenex.com. Use that code MTA Strength. Okay, we got one more question about injury, and this is from Anita. Uh, she says, I was curious if other runners have experienced heel pain and what they did for it. I've had to stop while I figure this out. This has been tough for me both physically and mentally. Heel pain. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I think that's a really common issue um, with runners often. And it, it can be that it is like plantar fasciitis and that it's painful. Those first steps in the morning, those are kind of the classic signs of it. It can also be something we'd want to rule out or look at would be making sure that it's not a calcaneal stress fracture or a bone. And those two are going to look a little bit differently. So plantar fasciitis is definitely going to be painful those first steps in the morning. Or if you've been sitting in a meeting at work for a while, then you go to stand it gets cold and then it when you start to move it gets painful again whereas a, a stress fracture is going to be painful even when you're not on it and especially potentially at night so those are kind of two different presentations with the heel pain oftentimes we're recommending that people use a night splint and what that does is just provides tension on that calf muscle so that it remains flexible a lot of us when we're sleeping we kind of unknowingly point our toes and then our calf muscles can get really tight and so then we go to stand on the ground the first thing in the morning, those calf muscles are really tight and it puts a lot of pressure onto that part where it inserts on the heel. Then other things we want to look at is um, kind of like toe yoga or foot strengthening. Um, so gripping tennis balls, gripping marbles, um, trying to do some arch strengthening is really good. Um, and then also just even calf raises and really focusing to make your calf muscle really strong, especially on a single leg, because that's what we're doing when we're running is we're on one leg. Yeah. Carrie, you alluded to dealing with um, heel pain. Uh, what did you do when you were trying to treat yours? You know, it's kind of one of those stubborn things. And I tried a number of things. Um, dry needling was one of the things that worked really well for me. I did use a night splint. And then also just not going barefoot was probably the, the biggest things. But more than anything, like Jenna said, making sure that your, your calves are strong, because a lot of times it, that's where it's coming from. All right. We're going to switch gears here a little bit. Talk about training more generally. Uh, here's a question about miles per week. All right. This comes from Kirsten. She says, how many miles a week makes for a successful marathon? My goal is to not be injured after this race like I was after my first marathon when I think that I was not putting enough miles in. So it sounds like she's done at least one marathon. Coach Carey, any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to say without knowing. I mean, as we all know, there's so many factors that go into how many miles you should be running a week, your running background, your current fitness, injury risk, your goals, and ultimately how much time you have in your schedule. It's the beauty of having a coach is that they can take the amount of time that you have and really maximize it and make sure that you're getting enough miles in. I would say if someone hard pressed me and asked me for a number, I'd say beginners are probably going to average anywhere from 25 to 35-ish miles a week. And generally, most of my athletes are probably at 35 to 50. And that's a wide range. But again, it really depends on how much time you have. Can you train on running three days a week? 
Absolutely. Should you? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't know that there's a hard and fast number. It really just depends on all of those factors that I mentioned. And, and again, the beauty of having a coach that can design a plan that's just for you. So Angie, I know a lot of people, when they check out our beginner training plans, sometimes they're shocked that there's not more miles, but it is possible to have success because the question is what makes for a successful marathon? It's possible to have success on a lower mileage plan, especially if you're a beginner. Yeah. And I, I think the plans that I've designed definitely focus on quality over quantity because sometimes people think, oh, more miles, you know, better. It's going to give me a better outcome. And so not necessarily, I would rather see somebody show up to the start line slightly undertrained but healthy than having done too much, overextended themselves, injured, burnout, all of those things. So I think do no harm kind of situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but definitely, I would fall on the side of getting a plan that is tailored for you because there are so many factors, like Carrie said so well. And it's just going to depend on even the amount of stress that you have in your life because training can be a stress and your body doesn't really differentiate between physical stress, emotional, mental, spiritual, like it all works together. So <laughs> yeah, well, we know runners are ambitious and they want to add miles rather than take some away. Unlike me out, <laughs> you mentioned toe yoga. That sounds good to me. Cause I could sit in my chair and just move my toes and count that as a workout. <laughs> yeah. The toe yoga is pretty popular and it is really challenging. One of the biggest ones that they're trying to do is if you imagine your five toes, you're trying to keep your big toe down, but raise up all your little toes and then reverse it and keep all your little toes down and keep up your big toe and trying to differentiate those toes. And then also just spreading your toes out really wide. Um, Yeah. Try to do that. And it is shockingly hard. Sometimes people actually have to like hold their toe down with their finger to get the other ones to go up or actually try to spread out their toes. So it's good to get the toes and feet moving. I think some people are trying toe yoga right now as they're, as they're listening to this. <laughs> but speaking of adding miles, here's a great question from Katie. She says, as you add mileage, at what point is it better to add another day versus keep the rest day? She says, for example, 40 miles with five days of running is feasible, but not 60 miles. And for folks who do a 10-day rotation rather than a seven-day rotation, how does that work? Are you able to keep long runs on the weekend? Um, Then she says, when it comes to speed work, I think it injures me before volume does. What is the minimum that I could do and still get some benefit? Alternatively, at what point does speed work have a diminishing return on race pace? So lots of questions. Yeah. So many questions, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. That's how you get answers. (laughs) All right. Who wants to jump in and unpack some of that? Carrie, I know you want to. I I can try to tackle some of it. Okay. Okay. I'm a fan of the rest day. I would say that everybody needs a rest day or two. So again, when I design my plans for my clients, I'm always going to try to get the most bang for their buck when, you know, as far as their time goes. And most people don't need to be running 60 miles a week, depending on what their goals are. So, you know, getting 40 miles a week for most people is more than enough. So as far as the time and building volume, like I'm going to say, take the rest day and then try to build volume in other places. Maybe your weekday runs are five or 10 minutes longer or whatever that might be. There's other ways to build volume than adding a day. I wanna respect those rest days and most people need one or even two days of no activity or, or less activity. As far as speed work and diminishing returns, I mean, not everybody needs speed work. I like to do speed work, it's fun, but depending on how you do it, yeah, if you go out and you just 
try to run as fast as you can straight out of the gate, you may get injured. So it's just like anything else. It's a progressive build. You're going to build the amount of time that you're doing. You're going to build your pace, all of those things carefully and, and safely so that you're not going to get injured. And again, working with a coach can help you do that. So you're not just out there trying to run, you know, six minute miles or whatever that might be um, when that's not a pace that you can achieve. So what was the other question? <laughs> Sorry, there's a lot of she questions was, there. Yeah, she was referring to um, a 10-day rotation. So um, for some people, instead of looking at it a seven-day week for their training, uh, it can be stretched out to 10 days. So basically, you do one long run typically in 10 days instead of every seven days. So, you know, like the seven-day week is kind of arbitrary when it yep. comes to training plans. That's not necessarily something that everyone needs to stick to. Um, and she was wondering, are you able to keep long runs on the weekend? I mean, I think if the purpose of a 10-day rotation is having a long run every 10 days versus having a long run every seven days. So probably, I mean, the simple answer is no. Again, working with a coach can kind of help you fit those pieces together and make the most of your time. I was kind of thinking, I was reading this question, is that I think when people get into trouble is sometimes they try to increase their volume and like ramp up their speed work or start speed work for the first time. And, you know, maybe they're not thinking like, oh, these two factors are going to be increasing the stress on my body. But, you know, sometimes I don't think people realize that it does take some time for our bodies to adapt in a healthy way. Um, and so it may not necessarily be the speed work. It could be just a lot of other factors surrounding it. Um, Jenna, what are your thoughts? I think Carrie hit the nail on the head when you talked about the speed work and the introduction of it. And I think that a lot of times people will go out too hot and they are trying to do that top end, like max sprinting speed. Potentially they're trying to hold that max sprinting speed for much too long than we really should be rather than like a ramp up max speed and come back down over a course of 30 seconds. And then just really realizing too, that speed work can be, you know, moving from your easy 12 minute pace on your long run and moving into your marathon pace at nine minutes for an 800 or one mile and then coming back, that your speed work doesn't always have to look like top end speed. It can just be moving from one speed to another. And again, really specifically, like when you're trying to do your speed work, kind of understanding when you're doing a max speed, that should be a really short window of time. The longer the time you're going to be working at that high speed, it should be slower. So again, maybe you're doing uh, mile repeats at your marathon pace during an easy run, um, but just try not to shoot for that top end speed. All right. Good stuff. So here's a question about shakeout runs. James wants to know, should I do shakeout runs or rest before a race? So I'm, I'm assuming this is like the day before a lot of people like to do a shakeout run. A lot of running groups and running clubs will go to a marathon and then, hey, we're going to have a shakeout run the day before everyone gets together. What are your thoughts, ladies, on shakeout runs before race day versus just taking a rest day? Yeah, I think doing a shakeout run can be really good. I think that if you're going to jump in with a group, just maybe making sure that you're not going out at your marathon or your goal pace, you want to be kind <laughs> of being in conservative there. It's it's just supposed to be, you know, maybe two miles, shaking out those legs, loosening them up a little bit, um, maybe doing one or two strides, but nothing serious. I think there's good support that that does keep your neurological system, your muscles like primed and ready to go for that next day and shake off like jet lag or any travel fatigue in those legs too. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, 
if you're going to go to a shakeout run, don't try to keep up with someone who's faster than you. You know, it should feel super easy for the most part. And I think also take into consideration whether you'll be going to the expo that day, because sometimes people can spend a good several hours on their feet um, wandering around expo. It's usually concrete floors and just walking around here and there. And you can end up putting several miles on your legs the day before a marathon, especially And that cumulative fatigue may not be the most conducive to running a PR or feeling your best on race day. So maybe you have to choose one or the other, you know, shake out run or walking around a bunch or (laughs) try to come to some happy medium. Do any of you like to do a shake out run after the marathon the next day? Shake out the soreness. (laughs) I like to get out and walk if I can. I don't know about run so much. And I guess it depends on if I've like raced it or if I've just run it. Um, But I do like to walk and stretch my legs the day after. Yeah, walking or maybe cycling or biking or even getting in the pool. Uh, Running hasn't ever gone very well for me the day or two after a marathon. (laughs) (laughs) It's usually for a psychological reason if a person is running the day after a marathon. So (laughs) (laughs) keep it easy. Really? Can you unpack that? What are you talking about? I think sometimes running, obviously, a lot of us do it for our mental health, for endorphins. And sometimes we, I know I have fallen into this before, kind of start to rely on that good feeling that running produces. And there can become kind of a tightening of your habits as a type A person, like, oh, I'm going to run every day and like more is better kind of situation. And so sometimes you can find yourself like, you know, doing something that is probably not the best for your overall health, just because you're like, I'm a person who runs every day. And, Mm. you know, if I, if I, go without a day or daily run, like what will my mental health be like? So there are a lot of factors that go into it. Yeah. (laughs) Agreed. Gotcha. All right. Good insight. Let's talk about ultra training. Got some questions here. This one's from Rudy. Uh, I got to meet him last year in Belgium. He's quite a runner. He says, I have my first 24 hour run. It's on a 2.4 kilometer loop. That sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's going to go around a loop for 24 hours. I know a lot of you guys have done that out there listening Uh, Mad respect. He says, I don't know what strategy to use yet. Do you recommend taking a 15 minute break to refuel and rest after every half marathon distance? Uh, Should I just run and stop if I feel like it's time to take a break or something else? So Carrie, you organize a, a race that's like this. So any tips for Rudy? Yeah, our winter ultra is a, one of the distances is a 20 hour ultra And it's on a, there's three different loops to choose from. There's a 2.3 mile loop, a 4.1 mile loop, and a 4.9 mile loop. So they get to choose. And I've done similar type um, races. My advice would be, first of all, at this point, he should kind of have an idea of what he's doing. So like your race day strategy should look like your training you know, you kind of got to get an idea of how often am I fueling? You know, what do the longer runs look like? You know, are you doing, what's your longest run? And you want to replicate what you're doing during your training on race day. So a lot of questions to ask, is he carrying nutrition or just using, you know, whatever's at the trailhead or the loop or whatever, thinking about that you're probably going to be more tired towards the end of the race. And I don't know if setting a specific distance is a good a good strategy, maybe more setting a time like, oh, I'm going to stop and, you know, every hour ish, you know, I know you can't determine maybe how long you're going to be out on the trail, but within an hour or so, I'm going to stop and refuel and 
you know, make sure that I don't have any blisters and make, do I need to change my clothes and things like that, that would come up in a, in a 24 hour period. Do I need to set some time aside for resting um, or am I going to? And so if it were me, I've done a 36 hour ultra triathlon and we do a, an Excel spreadsheet and we schedule like, okay, this is what we're doing here. And this is when we're going to rest. And this is when we're going to eat. And so you have an idea have I ever exactly followed that plan? Absolutely not. But it's a loose plan and it gives you a good idea of where things lay and you can help plan your nutrition and hydration because those two things can absolutely bomb a rate of that duration. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking um, if you're going to wait for after every half marathon distance to refuel, you're going to get in serious trouble very quickly. Um, yeah. My thought, you know, obviously he knows his body better than I do would probably be to stop after two loops. So, you know, for most people, depending on where he's at in the in the 24 hours, that would, you know, maybe be approximately 30 to 40 minutes. Um, so that would be like the least I would stop and get something to drink, some hydration, electrolytes, some fuel, bathroom, whatever you need to do, adjust socks, that kind of thing, because you don't want to get behind in your fueling and hydration when you're doing a long race like this. Jenna, do you have anything to add? I've never done an ultra, but I always, I watch a lot of ultra documentaries and nerd out about them. And I, I kind of think about, <laughs> I think about the timing of the temperature in like the daylight and those might be good times. You might not have a specific mileage by that point, but if it starts off cool and then it's starting to get hot, maybe making a plan that you're going to have a longer break where you can change for that afternoon period when it's warmer. And then as the sun is going down or setting, you're having a longer break then to get all your nighttime stuff on and change your gear and put on warmer clothes and maybe then even taking more time to get on fuel as you're getting colder and then just making maybe a strategic plan in the nighttime because it seems like a lot of ultra runners really struggle with the darkness of maybe taking a longer break to get some more fuel I think I've seen where a lot of people get crabby and they get kind of sad or down when they're seeing their calories get low. So maybe that could also be something that he's not going to have a mile time frame to go by. But if you're having that kind of emotional sadness to be like a trigger that he should be increasing his fuel. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So here's a question about the actual terrain one could train on, uh, in building up for a 50 K this, this comes from Courtney. Uh, she says at the age of 42, I'm running my first ever ultra a 50 K in West Virginia in June. I'm considering signing up for the Blue Ridge Marathon in Virginia in April as part of my training. It would be nice to run with others during the 26 miler on my training plan and also gain experience with the elevation since I live in South Carolina. Is this a wise strategy or will I be doing myself more harm than good? I have run three marathons in the past with the most recent being this past December. So it sounds like maybe it's flat where she lives and she wants to do a marathon as she's building up for her 50K. Well, yeah. I mean, she's got a 26-mile training run on her schedule. And so instead yeah. of just doing it solo, she wants to do it as part of a race. That's what I'm getting from this question. I think that's a great and idea. so kind of simulating what it would be like during the 50K with possibly trails and elevation. So it's like a supported long run. That sounds like a pretty smart thing. What do you think, Carrie? Yeah. I mean, if the race falls within the time period that she should be peaking at mileage and doing that long run. Absolutely. I think a supported mm -hmm. long run is a great idea. Um, and I would say too, if she were my client, are you okay not racing this? So 
you got to go and be able to use it as a training run and resist the urge to like race it. Because, you know, when you get up to that start line, most of us get a little ahead of ourselves. And sometimes we let things progress to where they maybe shouldn't. So if she can use it as a training run, I say, absolutely. It's a great opportunity to have support on your long run and to complete another marathon. It's a win-win. Definitely. Here's another listener doing her first ultra soon. So this comes from Wendy. She says, I am a 51-year-old female and will be running my first ultra, a 50-kilometer run this year. So far, the longest I have run is 26 kilometers. I'm having trouble with fueling and I can't take gels or electrolytes as they upset my stomach. Will dried fruits and banana be enough to fuel for this distance or do you have other suggestions? This is where it comes down to an eating contest, right, at at ultras. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would chime in and say, first of all, part of ultra training is often training your stomach. And if gels and electrolytes aren't working, then you got to try some other stuff. Um, Maybe that's some real food. And she mentioned dried fruit and banana. I don't know if I could eat dried fruit and bananas for 50 kilometers. (laughs) Dried fruits typically have a lot of fiber. And that's probably going to be a disaster. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Excessive amounts of fiber can cause bloating and gas and cramping. That's not a good recipe for ultra training. Some some would be okay for sure to get calories, but I would suggest that maybe she tries alternative gels. I don't know what she's using, but you know, most of those are glucose and fructose based. They have maltodextrin. Sometimes that stuff can be really upsetting to your stomach. So maybe you try something that's honey based or chia seed based or uh, rice or maple syrup, just really experimenting and training that gut and starting like ASAP. And maybe you start on your short runs where if you bail on a short run, it's not the end of the world and you don't trash your long run. So <laughs> just training your gut and trying out a lot of different things. Real foods can help. I mean, you know, we need energy when we run. So experimenting, uh, permission to eat some junky food. <laughs> I don't know what gels you're trying, uh, Wendy, but we definitely recommend you can. It's not as sweet and cloying as maybe some of the gels that you're used to. It's a good slow release carbohydrate source. And they also have snack bars. So if you want something solid, but you also want that super starch or what they call that live steady formula, which is their patented, you know, slow release carbohydrate, the Snack bars come in different flavors and they're amazing as well. And then I always like when I do long runs on the trail and when I did my 50K, I did take some uh, something with salt, like uh, some pretzels or mm-hmm. potato chips. Oh, they were so good. I thought you were going to say Pop-Tarts. Oh, I did that too. <laughs> yeah, just to kind of like treat myself. I never eat Pop-Tarts, but they tasted so good after like mile 20 or 25. Or like yeah. Stroop waffles. You know, there's a lot of like kind of interesting different fueling options that yeah. get away from the gels because I agree. I had to stop using traditional gels because they upset my stomach too. So I think it can lead you to a really good place of, you know, knowing there's a lot of food options out there. So yeah, keep a log of what you're trying and the results. <laughs> yeah. I think it can be a good point too to think about working with a sports nutritionist. The one that I work with and refer to a lot sometimes alludes to that that upset stomach can be from just starting underfueled and not actually giving yourself enough energy as you're going. So it might not actually be the gel you're taking in as you might be kind of like on empty and then you're taking in something your body's rebelling. So that might be a good a good time to work with a sports nutritionist and they can talk about a lot of that for you. Can you imagine doing 50K and just eating dried apricots? <laughs> you would, no. 
You have to stop at every bathroom available. In my last marathon, I didn't have a, a rotation of flavors in my energy, and it was it was the worst decision ever. The flavor yuck or the flavor fatigue was real. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Even just that sweet fatigue, like you were talking about, Trevor, sometimes you just need oh, something yeah. savory to break it up. Pickle juice, Pretzels, potato chips, yep. whatever. <laughs> okay, I got one more quick story. So back in the day, we had Stephanie Howe Violet on the podcast. She won the Western States Endurance Run. And we were talking to her about her fueling. And she said she ate 90 gels. And that was it. Like, Mountain Dew and gel, like she had such a high tolerance for something sweet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can you imagine that for like 24 hours? No. Yeah, I like sweet stuff, but my teeth are aching just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need those little toothbrush wisps like Courtney Dewalter uses. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. Okay, quick break. You just heard me mention UCAN. We love these people. I mean, UCAN is the bomb. The proprietary secret ingredient is something that they call Live Steady. It's a low glycemic carbohydrate that breaks down slowly, which means it delivers long-lasting energy without that spike and crash that a sugar-based gel will give you. I enjoy having stable blood sugar levels, especially when I am out there running. And, you know, I had problems with traditional gels, and that's why we switched to UCAN. And I've used them for, you know, everything from half marathons to ultras. And UCAN has come through time and time again. Uh, Trevor, you mentioned the energy bars. They have several flavors, chocolate almond butter, salted peanut butter fudge, peanut butter fudge, and they've got a cherry berry flavor as well. So if you want to change it up and eat something solid during your race, these can be a great option. Yeah, you can actually eat 20% off um, the bars or anything on the UCAN site with our code MTA. And if you've never been a customer and you want to try out UCAN for the very first time, you can get a sample pack. It's called the Marathon Training Academy Sample Pack. You can try the Edge Gels for free. Just pay shipping over at UCAN.co slash MTA. Look for that sample pack. Or if you're going to reorder, use our code for 20% off UCAN.co slash MTA. Okay, we got some questions now about shoes and feet. Uh, this one's about Morton's Neuroma. Sheila asks, can you run a marathon if you have a Neuroma, Morton's Neuroma? If so, are low drop shoes the best option with this condition? So I have no idea. Jenna, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, so I personally struggled with Morton Neuroma issues with my last marathon. Um, and I really found that uh, low drop shoes tend to have the wider toe box version um, but you also have to get used to that low drop. So if you're used to a shoe that's like a 10 millimeter uh, drop, you can always look at those shoes are almost always offered in a wide, which gives you more flexibility in the forefoot. So with the Morton's Noroma, we really just want space in between those toes um, and allowing room to spread out. It can be even overnight when you're sleeping, like sleeping with those little pedicure um, spacers between your toes or the yoga toe. Um, can be really nice, a good option. But so minimalist shoes always often come with that wide toe box. Um, but again, if you're not used to that minimal profile, you want to be careful going into that low drop because that could be a really big change. All right. This one's from Emma. She's an Academy member. She says, I've always trained and raced uh, in the same pair of shoes. Should I have a separate pair for racing and speed work and a separate pair for easy days? I'm curious to hear the coach's thoughts. So shoe rotation, we've already uh, mentioned this, but how important is that, Coach Carey? I 
I have, if you ask my husband, I have way too many shoes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think that you necessarily need a separate pair for speed work or long runs. I think, as we mentioned before, it's just important to rotate them, to give them time. Because when we run, especially our long runs, that padding inside your shoe is compressing. And you think about it, if you do a long run, you're running two or three hours, and then you get up the next day or the day after and you run in them, they probably haven't had time to to come back and kind of spring back. So I like to have shoes on rotation, again, ABC or however you want to label them so that they have time to to bounce back. And I feel like they last a little longer. So I think it's less important speed work versus long runs and more just that you have a couple of pair in the rotation to um, give them time to, to give you the most support. Do you try to keep up with how many miles are on each pair? Sometimes knowing that there's a margin of error, um, because I do have probably three or four, maybe even five different pivots in the rotation, depending on if I'm running trail or road, I miss sometimes, but generally, yes. All right. Jenna and Angie, how many, uh, how many pairs do you have in rotation right now? That's a very personal question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I live with you. I can just go look. I know you can go count. (laughs) Um, well, it's hard because sometimes we have to test shoes. Um, I guess I have two different pairs of trail shoes and like some really minimal ones that I just wear for the treadmill and then probably like three other pairs that I rotate for road running. So I don't know how many of that, six, (laughs) 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 but I do keep track of my mileage very religiously on them because I do tend to notice for me, not everyone is not like this, but I do notice that once they get over three, 350 miles on them that I notice that I start to have a higher chance of, I'm going to call it niggles or injury crop up. I'm like, why are my legs still so flat, so dead? So for me, I just keep track of that. And, you know, I think it's also really important that you don't let a pair of shoes get too many miles on them, especially if they're your one and only shoes. And then you get to race day. I've had lots of people ask me like, you know, race, race, the race is in a week, you know, and my shoes have 600 miles on them. Should I buy a new pair? Or should I run in my old shoes? And it's kind of like, don't put yourself in that situation, like always be adding a new pair into the rotation. When your other shoes are in a medium wear range, at least that's my, yeah, (laughs) my take on it. Okay, here's a question from Tony, who's been on the podcast before he's a sub three hour marathoner. He wants to know about plated shoes, super shoes. He said, how often should one run in super shoes? Example, save them basically for a tune-up race and race day, use them for speed work once a week, use them for long runs or go nuts and use them all the time. Is there any research on performance gains, recovery times versus injury risk with super shoes? I think there's not enough research to say that you should wear them all the time or that that would be an injury risk. Um, I do hear from people from more anecdotal experience that they do feel that their legs just feel not as trash when they're doing some longer runs in some of the plated or the fast shoes. And then there is only very low level research about plated shoes causing injury risk. So that was actually just in like a couple of people, for example, they didn't have a big number on that at all. So there hasn't been a huge change in injury risk at all for wearing them. And I think just from perspective, again, with the shoe rotation is don't wear them all the time. Maybe you wear them for when you're going to do some of your training runs that look like your races and then also wear them in that race period. And I think people have to also weigh the cost versus benefit because they are very expensive. And I've heard that you can't get as many miles out of them 
typically before they start to show some wear on the sole. And so if you have the budget to throw money at super shoes, then have a couple, three pairs and you know rotate them if your injury risk is low and things like that. But you should never just wear any shoe brand new on race day. So if you're going to planning to wear super shoes for your race, you need to at least have one long run in them and probably a speed workout as well, just to make sure you know how they perform and how your body feels afterwards. Angie, do you have a pair of super shoes? I do. I have a pair of Nike Alpha Flies, which I've only worn for one marathon. <laughs> and I did, you know, do a long run in them beforehand, but I was kind of trying to save them, <laughs> not wear them out. And then I just noticed my calf muscles were extremely sore after the marathon, like more sore than normal. So I'm like, I don't know, just because they're so built up and I typically don't wear a shoe that with that much build up underneath them, I think it just there was more pronation going on. I don't know. It was some combination that I'm like, eh, I got to be careful with these. So yeah, or it could be like if he if he frequently races, then those shoes are kind of he and the shoes are getting exposure, right? Or if you're only racing once or twice a year, then you probably need to wear them at, for a training run to break them in. Mm-hmm. Carrie, any experience with these super shoes? I do not have any super shoes. I do have a couple of athletes that wear them, and my advice is always ease into them. I mean, just like any new shoe that's different, different style or whatever, you want to ease into it. So don't just take them out for a 20 mile long run, because as Angie said, you know, you may have sore calves, you may cause some niggles somewhere. So yeah, I just say ease into them. And then again, if you're going to race in them, you want to get a few runs in them to practice and see how your body reacts. Okay. Here's one final question. Another very practical question. This comes from Eddie, who says he's been a listener to the podcast since episode two, Wow! which is like 14 years ago. (laughs) Way to go, Eddie. He says, "Um, are there any online sites that you use to look up your past races? And what are some favorite sites to find upcoming events? I really like, it's called Athlinks, A-T-H-L-I-N-K-S. And you go in and you type in your name and it has any race that's been like publicized on the internet. And then you claim them and you add them to your profile. I like that one. I mean, you know, we can always use our smartwatch or or Strava or something like that, but that pulls them all in. So if you changed watches or maybe you didn't have Strava, it pulls things in from like way back. (laughs) So that I like for tracking my races. And then I really like to look up races on runningintheusa.com. That's my favorite. Um, She's also a local gal. She used to be my neighbor, uh, the couple that runs that website. So I I somehow stumbled onto that information. I was like, oh, wow. But yeah, she lives here in, in in Waukesha. And it's pretty comprehensive. You can search by area, you can search by distance. So I tend to go to that one more often than not. How about you, Jenna? What are some of your favorites? I have done both of those. I really liked running in the USA with this last year, trying to plan kind of more fun runs instead of goal races where I was shooting for a PR. I just wanted to like go to a hot chocolate run or do some winter running. So it was a great way to kind of discover different places in Minnesota where they're running, um, different times of the year where you might be traveling there. That's also a great thing if you're going to be going somewhere. You can kind of search that state and see what's going to be close to you. So Angie, you did a marathon in every state. So you spent a lot of time looking for races because we were trying to coordinate with our travels and jump into races when we could. And you spent a lot of time on Marathon Guide. Yeah, Mm. I think that was before Running in the USA had been launched. So 
Marathon Guide was a very faithful companion. And you can look up U.S., you can look up international races on there. I think one feature where you can kind of go down a rabbit hole, those of us who like to nerd out on running, is they have reviews. And so you can read, Uh but you can kind of get a sense of the race and, you know, maybe things that you should be thinking about or looking out for with the race that's not advertised on the race website. Another website, I have no idea what this name means, but it's ahatu.com. It's A-H-O-T-U, ahatu.com. This website is awesome for looking up international races. And this is multi-sport as well, right? Yeah. You can filter according to distance, terrain. You can filter by country, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I found tons of interesting little races over in Europe that I couldn't find anywhere else, like this beer lovers marathon that I did in Belgium. Um, I've thought about in the past launching a race directory, you know, just having it on our website as just another benefit for people that visit the site. By the way, if you're hearing this and you've not visited recently, come pay us a visit over where we live online, marathontrainingacademy.com. Lots of great articles and links over there. We do not have a race guide. We don't <laughs> because I thought about like how much work it is because dates change and then sometimes races are discontinued. So every year you can get a look and say, all right, what's the date this year? Is this race even still going? Of all of Angie and, and my marathons in the past we've run, there's probably half a dozen or more that are defunct now, you know, including my first marathon, the St. Louis Rock and Roll Marathon. That was, I loved- that was one of my first. <laughs> That's cool. You know what also is sad is the New Orleans Rock and Roll Marathon. That one was fantastic and it's no longer a thing. It happens. So anyway, it's a lot of work to keep up a race directory. So I decided not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> There's also active.com, which you can type in your zip code and it will pull up a lot of different events. So yeah. that's also an option. All right. Well, thank you everyone that sent in a question. And thank you, Coach Carrie and Coach Jenna for joining us on the podcast and just for all the awesome work um, helping clients achieve their goals. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. Ask the Coach Q&A. That is part one because we have a ton more questions and we have other coaches on the team that we want to bring on. Each coach has their own area of expertise. I mean, all of them know how to structure training plans. They're all marathoners themselves. But then it's interesting too how each has kind of their specialized area of knowledge. That's right. Like Coach Jenna, who is a doctor of physical therapy, you know, we have the opportunity to help runners who want to return to running after an injury, or maybe if you're currently injured and you feel like you're just hitting the wall and not making progress like you want to, she would be an awesome coach to work with. Yeah, definitely. We're here to help you no matter what you're trying to do in your long distance running. Uh, We got a coach who has done what you want to do and who can guide you. Go over to our website to learn more, marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash coaching. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We're so happy to be on this running journey with you. Thanks for listening to the podcast and hit subscribe if you haven't officially subscribed. Keep an eye out for part two of Ask the Coach Q&A. And uh, hey, if you're going to be at the Tokyo Marathon, let us know. There's still time. Uh, We have a meetup planned, so shoot us an email. Until next time, remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.